This morning I'm going to go back to John chapter 3. I'm going to do something a little different in that um, I want to take my cue from the evangelistic month that we have. And so I want to really get down to chapter 3, verse 16 to 18, but not lose sight of the entire portion uh, wherein this uh, is found. And so to do that, I want to do quite a large portion of reading. And I believe that even if you forget everything I say, but you hear what God says in his own word, uh, if you listen to the word of God itself and follow through as we read, the word speaks for itself. Um, you cannot read this and not, be, uh, not recognize that God is, has provided a wonderful work of salvation and that work of salvation is available to all who believe. So I want to read from John chapter 2. I want to pick up our reading in verse 23 of John chapter 2 because as we have said in previous sermons, that's exactly where this portion starts. John chapter 2. And verse 23. Now, when he was in Jerusalem, this is Jesus, when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. But Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them. And as we explained, that that phrase, do not trust himself, then means that Jesus, on his part, did not believe in their believing because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. Chapter 3, verse 1. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh. That which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I say to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound. But you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Nicodemus said to him, how can these things be? Jesus answered him, are you the teacher of Israel, and yet you do not understand these things? Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear witness of what we have seen, but you do not receive a testimony. If I've told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and people love the darkness rather than the light, because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light, so that he may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. Verse 31, this is now an account of John the Baptist speaking to his disciples who have come to him asking about Jesus. And he says this about Jesus, he who comes from above is above all. He who is of the earth belongs to the earth and speaks in an earthly way. He who comes from heaven is above all. He bears witness to what he has seen and heard, 
yet no one receives his testimony. Whoever receives his testimony sets his seal on this, that God is true. For he whom God has sent utters the words of God, for he gives a spirit without measure. The Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hand. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for the record of your work of salvation in your one and only Son. The one indeed who was with you. The one who came to this earth and descended and lived amongst men as a man. The one who suffered at the hands of his own creatures. The one who finally died on Calvary's cross. And we thank you, Lord, that this is the one in whom we believe. The one who has faced your wrath on the behalf of all those who believe. The one who has died so that those who are his find eternal life. We thank you that you have saved wicked, sinful men such as we because of your love. We thank you for your son who was obedient to you in all respects, even to the death on the cross. This morning, Father, as we take up your word, we pray that you may speak to our hearts clearly, that as we hear your word spoken and read and quoted from, that our hearts may be challenged to respond correctly. Those of us who believe that we may be encouraged in our belief, and those who do not believe this morning, they may find eternal life. We give our thanks to this end. In Jesus' name and for his sake alone. Amen. I know that it makes it easier when a, a sermon is broken up into um, sections. I had a little difficulty breaking this portion up into sections this morning. So I've been extremely creative. And uh, I have three sections. And it's simply called Introductory Thoughts Leading Up to 3, 16 to 18. Essential Thoughts in Chapter 3, Verses 16 to 18. Concluding Thoughts on Chapter 3. And that is, I think, the entire sermon wrapped up in as simple uh, sections as I can. So, the central thought in this passage, uh, specifically focused this morning on John chapter 3, verse 16 to 18, was that's where I want to go. The central thought in this passage is that God loves. God loves. John 3, verse 16 is about the unmerited love of God for his sinful creatures. Irrespective of how these creatures respond to his love, God continues to love because God is love. 1 John 4 verse 8. God has not chosen to love us because we have come to love him by understanding the gospel. Many mistakenly believe that God responds to us because we have reached out first of our own volition. And many make John 3 verse 16 say that. That somehow we have recognized that God's a loving God. And we've reached out to God. And God responds to that act by then giving us salvation. We made the first move. John clearly refutes this when he states, In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us. And sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. 1 John 4 verse 10. God made the first move. And if God didn't make the first move, we would not have moved. If God did not make the first move, we would not have been moved. If God did not love, we would not have loved nor known what love is. Our default response to God is not love but rejection. That's our first response to God. None is righteous, none at one. No one understands no one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they become worthless. No one does good. Not even one. Romans 3 verse 10. It is impossible for us to initiate the relationship of love with God. It does not lie within our power. Neither is it the desire of our hearts to love God. Jeremiah tells us that our hearts are deceitful above all things. Desperately wicked. Desperately sick. 
John chapter 3 verse 16 shows that there is only one response that we are required to make to this love of God. There's only one response that God requires of us. And that response is to believe. That's exactly what John says in this portion of his, of his gospel. In fact, the word believe comes in so strongly that while we understand that the central thought of this is that God loves, there's a parallel and concomitant action required by man in that man believes. Um, go to chapter 2 again. Chapter 2, verse 23. It says, Now when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed. And we said that down in verse 24, Jesus didn't believe in their belief. And so John already introduced us to this concept, this uh, thing that we call belief. Uh, chapter 3, verse 12. If I told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? And Jesus starts um, challenging Nicodemus with this need to believe. Verse 15, that whosoever believes in him may have eternal life. And the word belief uh, is threaded through this entire portion. Verse 16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish. Verse 18, whoever believes in him is not condemned. Whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed. Verse 36, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. It's impossible to miss the thrust of John's message. There's a God who loves. There's a God who loves uh, even when the ones we love are unlovable, but they are required to simply believe. And so every time we uh, challenge someone with the gospel, uh, the question to ask is, do you believe or not believe? That's the question to ask. And we should not be satisfied with a simple response, yes, I believe in Jesus. How many times have you not heard that? Do you believe in Jesus? Yes, I believe in Jesus. I know Jesus. You should not accept that as an answer on face value. Jesus himself did not accept that kind of belief at face value. Go back to chapter 2, verse 23. And when he says that, uh, that many believe in his name, they say exactly what people say when we challenge them. Yes, we believe. We believe in his name. We believe he's the son of God. But Jesus knew their hearts. He knew that their belief was shallow and temporal, and their belief was not a result in permanent change that brought eternal life. Jesus could see their hearts. We can't see the hearts of those who we evangelize. Therefore, we need to challenge them to drive that question deeper until we get a response from them that clarifies to them where they stand before God, whether they believe or whether they don't. The reason that Jesus knew that they believe was not driven by saving faith was because he himself knew what was in man. And it's against this backdrop that John brings Nicodemus into the narrative. Nicodemus, who approaches Jesus at night, and he is continuously known by that throughout the rest of the gospel, Nicodemus, who approached Jesus by night. He came acknowledging that Jesus is a teacher come from God because he saw the signs that Jesus did, and he could not argue with those signs. It was obvious that this man came from God. He didn't say that he was God. He was acknowledging that he's the Messiah, but certainly this man was different. But his heart is as obvious to Jesus as the heart of the crowd was. So Jesus looks past the greeting that Nicodemus brings and sees into the deepest recesses of this man's heart and identifies his immediate and desperate serious problem. This man needs to be born again. A work that only the Spirit could accomplish. This was a man who lived by his works. He was proud of the accomplishments of um, his status. He was the renowned teacher in Israel. He taught the word to the nation. And he was a Pharisee in every sense. And he laid all his store on that to get eternal life. But Jesus says he needs to be born again. In fact, Jesus responds to a question that Nicodemus doesn't ask by saying, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, or as we correctly showed, born from above, he cannot see the kingdom of God. This was a man to whom heavenly things should have been crystal clear. Nicodemus, of all the people in Israel, should have had a clear understanding of the scriptures. 
but he has no spiritual perception. He's unable to comprehend heavenly things. He's so earthly bound that he's no heavenly good. That's a bit of a change of something I've heard as growing up. But he was earthly bound. He's bound to his works, to his person, to his status in society, to his accomplishments, all those things that belong to time and sense and have no value in eternity. We all do that. We all attach ourselves to people and things we think will get us eternal life, and they don't. We only have to do one thing, is to attach ourselves to the Lord Jesus Christ, to have eternal life. And that is, a, is provided for us through the process of believing. Jesus accommodates Nicodemus' lack of understanding of heavenly matters by using simple earthly things as teaching aids. Jesus uses natural things such as the process of birth and the blowing of the wind as analogies of the work of the Holy Spirit to bring the teacher of Israel unto an understanding of things he should have known. But Nicodemus, this great Jewish intellectual, is unable to understand even simple earthly things, let alone things that are heavenly. And so Jesus takes him to a passage in the Old Testament that Nicodemus knew very well. Jesus says in chapter 3, verse 14 of John's Gospel, And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. Sometimes I may slip into saying whosoever. That's just my old King James version coming out uh, in my memory. But it's, it's whoever, the same thing. Jesus, of course, is referring to Numbers chapter 21. In six short verses in that chapter, uh, we have an account of an amazing event. Israel, who has been set free from the bondage of slavery in Egypt uh, and are bound for the promises of Canaan, are walking through the desert, being fed by the hand of God with a miraculous provision of food, uh, of God's presence during the day as a pillar of fire, uh, a, a cloudy pillar, and at night as a pillar of fire. And for all that, uh, they are discontent. If you want to see discontentment, read the account of the wilderness wandering of the people of Israel. Discontented to the core. And so they speak out against God, they speak out against Moses, and God sends poisonous snakes to bite the people of Israel. Once bitten, death followed swiftly. Many were bitten, many died. They come to Moses, who they had just spoken against, and ask him to intervene once again. And Moses does, and God provides salvation. The Lord instructs Moses to make a bronze serpent, and to sit on the pole and lift it high, so that anyone who was bitten could simply look at the raised bronze serpent, and having looked, he would, uh, he would not perish, but would continue to live. They didn't have to do anything. No work, no sacrifice, no payment of gold or silver. They simply had to look and live. And Jesus uses this event embedded in Jewish history to reveal his work to Nicodemus. I read it and I remind of a hymn that I sang growing up. Life is offered unto you, hallelujah. Eternal life your soul shall have. If you only look to him, hallelujah. Look to Jesus who alone can save. And so those are the uh, introductory thoughts that lead up to John chapter 3, verse 16. And so for the next few moments, I want to address those essential thoughts that's contained in John chapter 3, verses 16 to 18. It's in this historical event that happened in uh, the wilderness uh, that is cited by the Lord Jesus Christ as a type, as a foreshadowing of his death. And John uses that event as a prelude to chapter 3, verse 16, where he says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God not sent his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the Son of God. This is probably the best-known verse in the Bible. There's hardly a person who hasn't been 
influenced in some form or fashion by Christianity who doesn't know this verse. And probably together with what is commonly called the Lord's Prayer and maybe Psalm 23, uh, probably forms all they ever know about the Bible. But this is certainly the, uh, the favorite verse of so many, saved and unsaved alike. They go to this verse when it suits them. There's hardly a person who knows this verse that doesn't have a view on what it means. They all have an opinion on the being of this verse. It has been said that Martin Luther called this verse the gospel in miniature. And this verse has been the center of innumerable evangelistic sermons. It may seem to you that enough has been said. What more can be said about this verse? But like every portion of God's word, this verse has not been eroded by time. And the repetition will not dilute the forcefulness of what it says. This is a, a, a portion of God's word. And these verses, verses 16 to 18, strike home at the heart of everyone. Believe and unbeliever alike. Because it reminds us who have believed of what we've been saved from. It challenges those who do not believe that they are to be aware of the condemnation in which they are living today. We can only be enriched by engaging it over and over again in an attempt to plumb the depths of the truths contained in this verse. It's helpful to know the central thought of this passage as we try to understand what it teaches. We've gone there already. We've already noted that the central thought is God loves. But verse 16 takes that thought and extends it by saying, God loved the world. And everything in verses 16 to 18 hangs on those words. God loved the world. Understanding the sentence is essential to understanding the gospel in miniature. If you miss what is said here, we make John 3.16 uh, say what John does not intend to, to say under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. It is true that the aim of Scripture is to bring us to a true and personal knowledge of God. And everyone who is familiar with this verse assumes that they know who God is. Everybody who speaks to this says, I know the God of John 3, verse 16. And it's true that the aim of Scripture is to bring us to a true and personal knowledge of God. Uh, John chapter 17, verse 3 says this, And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom we have sent. God wants us to know who he is. Proverbs 18, verse, 8, verse, 8, 8, verse 17 says this, I love those who love me, and those who seek me, diligently find me. And so the scriptures intend us to find God. God intends us to find him. But no man will ever understand God exhaustively. The Bible is clear that God is ultimately incomprehensible to us. That is, we can never fully comprehend his own, his whole being. And sometimes those who claim to know the God of John 3 verse 16 say so too glibly, too easily, demonstrating their lack of really knowing you cannot fully know God. Great is the Lord, and greater to be praised, and his greatness is unsearchable, says the psalmist in 145. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. Isaiah 55, verses 8 to 9. Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable are his judgments, and how, uns- and how inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who has been his counselor? Romans 11. God is a transcendent God. God is unknowable in so many ways. But God wants to be known. And God does make himself known. But he makes himself known on his terms, in his way, by the provision supplied by him alone. But even though God is beyond human comprehension, most people have some idea who is being referred to in John 3, verse 16, when it says, for God. Most people also have an impression of God's love. There's only an impression if the person doesn't have the Holy Spirit to illuminate the truth of God's love in them. The non-redeemed sinner cannot truly embrace the love of God. For if he did, he would not be unredeemed. The person who's unredeemed doesn't fully comprehend what the love of God is because he has not experienced that love of God actively in his life. He's dead to that. He's blind to that. Because if he had known what the love of God has achieved for him as a sinner, he would stop 
being unredeemed. In fact, they desperately cling to the claim that God loves in an attempt to avoid the fact that God is also God who judges. They try to evade the, the, the ultimate end of their life and facing a holy God by saying, now God is love. Surely God loves me enough to forgive me. But the word that seems to be most misunderstood in this verse is the word world. God loved the world. On the one hand, this word world is often glossed over to get to the phrase, whoever believes. We want to get there, whoever believes. And people fail to see that whoever believes is defined by the world in which they find themselves. A certain well-known contemporary preacher puts it this way, quote, The world is the great ocean of perishing sinners from whom the whoever comes, close quotes. On the other hand, others dwell too long and too sentimentally on the so loved, and they attach to the world and the whoever of the world a significance that John 3, 16 does not attach. There is a sentimentality that creeps in and say, well, God so loved the world. And that takes us down a trail of trying to uh, address human emotion and human sentimentality, whereas John 3, verse 16, and right under verse 18, is not a treatise on sentimentality. It's a clear-cut warning from the very mouth of God. Again, I quote another writer who states this in an imminently more profound way. Quote, that many, perhaps the majority of those who feed their souls on this great declaration seem to have trained themselves to think not so much of how great, how immeasurably great God's, God's love is, but rather how great the world is. It's the world that God loves, they say. It's the world. And forthwith, they fall into thinking how great the world is, and how nevertheless God loves it all. That's a quote, close quote, from B.B. Warfield. An overemphasis on the importance of the world detracts from the single central thought in this passage. God loves. That's the focal point. That's what John 3, verse 16 is about. Understanding of John 3, 16 begins with our understanding of the world in this verse. The apostle John uses the word world frequently in his writings. This is a very common word in John's writings. And he uses it in different ways. It's important to understand how is he using it here to understand how the love of God impacts the whosoever's in, those world, in that world. Turn to John chapter 1. And you see John using all of this in one verse. He uses the word cosmos in three ways in, a, in one verse. And we'll see which one he uses in verse 16 of chapter 3. John 1 verse 9. The true light which gives life to everyone was coming into the world. Verse 10. He was in the world. He came into the world and he was... Um, alive and active, present within that world system. Uh, he was in the world. Um, as the world lived uh, politically, uh, socially, uh, culturally, uh, he was in touch with all of that. He was in the world, and the world was made through him. Uh, he lived within this uh, system in the world, which is existent in the world he created. And yet the world did not know him. The inhabitants of the world, those who inhabit the world that he created, the world which uh, is um, um, engaged with through the systems of the world, it's those inhabitants of the world, yet the world did not know him. It's this last form of the word, the world of inhabitants, that we are presented with in John chapter 3, verse 16. The world of people. God loved this world. To the natural eye, this should be a rather appealing place. But we see the world, we look around us, and we love it, don't we? Don't we? we look at the beauty of landscapes, and seascapes, and we wonder at the marvels of nature. We say, despite the fall, yet the beauty of nature surrounds us, and we are enthralled by that. We hear children's laughter, and we see family gatherings as a reflection of, of love and of peace and of joy, and, and, and we are taken by that. We see astounding works of art and magnificent achievements in architecture and engineering, and we wonder at what God has made available to men in giftedness. The problem is that despite all that appears to be good and interesting and beautiful about the world around us, this world is overrun by sinners. It's an ugly world. It's a world that's filled with darkness, 
and people who live in darkness. It's a world that's filled with sin and all that sin does. No matter how wonderful the world may appear to you and me, it is not worthy of God's redeeming love. We are not worthy of His love. Those who uh, inhabit this world by God's grace, those who um, benefit from the systems established by God, those who feed off what's provided for them by the world, we are not worthy of God's redeeming love. So who is this world in this passage? Uh, How do we understand how John uh, uses this to bring us to understanding that God loves and we go through to four possible understandings. It's not my own work. I've gleaned this from reading others. I can't quote all of them. But uh, certainly, uh, to my mind, this has helped me distill in, in my thoughts uh, how to address the world in John chapter 3, verse 16. In the first place, many people believe that when John 3, 16 says that God loves the world, it means that he loves every person, head for head, equally. So as long as you have been born to this world, God loves you irrespective of who you are. The logic, unfortunately, goes something like this. God loves every person, and Christ died for every person. Therefore, the only conclusion one can draw is that salvation has been secured for every person. Everyone is potentially able to be saved, and that drives it into a, into a theology called Christian universalism. This system holds a view that all human beings will ultimately be saved and restored to a right relationship with God because God loves the world. It is irrespective of how they live and irrespective of what condition they die in. But John chapter 3 completely contradicts this viewpoint. John clearly separates those who believe, those who have eternal life, those who are not condemned, from those who are condemned already those who perish, and on whom the wrath of God remains. There is no blanket salvation for all. There's no salvation by accident. There's no salvation by birthright. There's no salvation by baptism into a church. There's no salvation by saying just the Lord's Prayer. Salvation is given to those who rightfully believe in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Some believe and have eternal life. The rest do not believe and stand condemned. The question we have to ask is, which are you? Are you one of those who believe and have eternal life and who stand this morning not condemned because Christ has been condemned for you? Or are you one of those who do not believe and you stand condemned and the wrath of God remains on you? This view holds that the world includes all people without exception. But this view goes against the Bible's teaching on God's judgment, as is evidenced in the immediate context of chapter 3, verses 7 to 21. It's clear that there are two groups of people, and not all are saved. Some have eternal life, and some remain under the wrath of God. There's a second view that argues that this world means all people without distinction. And this view emphasizes that God loves more than one type of person or ethnic group. The death of Christ, they say on the cross, wasn't only for Jews, but for Gentiles also. And they are absolutely right. That's exactly what Jesus died for. In fact, John says the very thing in chapter 10, verse 14. I am the good shepherd, as as the Lord Jesus Christ is speaking. I know my own, and my own know me. Just as the Father knows me, and I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep, and I have other sheep that are not of this fold. So he lays in life for his sheep, the Jews, and he has other sheep that is not of that fold, the Gentiles. I must bring them also, and they will listen to my voice, so there will be one flock and one shepherd. It is clear that God does love the world without distinction. But this view, while it's correct, doesn't quite capture that jolting distinction between the love of a holy God and a sinful world. It summer does not quite reach the depth that John 3 verse 16 goes to. It doesn't quite put in opposition the love of a God who loves without um, uh, wanting love first and a world that hates God 
from the moment we are born. There's a third view held by Reformed theologians who argue that the world in John 3, verse 16 obviously refers to the elect. They point out that Jesus emphasizes the particularity of his grace throughout the Gospel of John. For example, Jesus says in chapter 6, verse 37, All that the Father gives me will come to me. He says again in chapter 10, verse 14, I am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me. I lay down my life for the sheep. He says again in chapter 15, verse 9, If I were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Chapter 17, verse 9, the, the high priestly prayer of the Lord Jesus Christ. I am praying for them. I am not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, they are yours. The fact that God's people are chosen from an unbelieving world is absolutely correct. However, if one is true to the text of John 3, verse 16, then we would not be able to prove election here, even though we can prove it from chapters 6 and 10 and 15 and 17. The focus of the term world in John 3, 6 is not so much about the identity of God's people, but on the nature of God's love. And that is imminently important. So this leads us to the fourth and final option of what this world could be. The world in John 3, verse 16 is the recipient of the quality of God's love and not the quantity of God's love. It's not about how much God loves, but about the manner in which he loves undeserving sinners. In contrast, some theologians have rationalized that John 3, 16 teaches the potentiality for all to be saved. They point to the soul in God so loved the world. And mistakenly, they take that word to indicate the magnitude of God's love. They say God, since God's love for the world is so great, so huge, and therefore makes salvation potentially available to everyone, after all, he loves them so much. But if you look at the word so in the original, you see it does not refer to the magnitude of God's love, but the manner in which he loved. To quote B.B. Uh, Warfield again very loosely, when they incorrectly suggest that the world is so big that it takes a great deal of love to embrace it, they lose sight of the unassailable fact that the world is so bad that it takes a great kind of love to love it at all. And much more to love it as God has loved it when he gave his son for it. So instead of reading John 3, verse 16, as we usually do, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son, we should say, God loved the world in this way. He gave his one and only son. It's an indication of the manner of God's love for us. The gift he gave, an enormous gift, the enormity of the gift surpasses our understanding. The depth to which, that, to which that gift went to procure salvation for us is beyond our comprehension. But the gift was given by a God who loved. It was given because God did love. And apart from the love of God, the world stands under God's condemnation. But in Christ, believers experience God's surpassing, redeeming, and never-ending love. The world is exposed to the love of God through the preaching of God's word, through the witness of the saints, the testimony of uh, the Lord Jesus Christ, uh, in that he, uh, his spirit works in the hearts of men, and the world continues to reject him. But those who believe experience a surpassing, uh, redeeming, and never-ending love of a God who loves simply because he loves. John 3, verse 16 is not about the greatness of the world, but about the greatness of God and the greatness of his gift. He gave his one and only son. We're saying about this morning, the one and only. John 3, 16 also makes clear that God had a, perp a purpose for giving his son. God did not need a purpose to love. He simply loves because he loves, period. We can never say that God loves us because. We can never put the, that conjunction after God loves. God loves us because we are so good. God loves us because uh, we are so pitiful. God loves us because I go to church. We cannot phrase it in that way. We cannot even say that because God loves, he chooses to express that love in ways that suit his purposes. <laughs> this is beautifully captured 
in Deuteronomy chapter 7, where Moses writes this. It was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you, for you were the fewest of all peoples. But it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery and from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. God didn't love them because they were wonderful and great, but because God loved them, he made them a great nation. This is precisely the thought of John chapter 3, verse 18. God loved the world, and because he loved the world, he manifested that love in the sending of his one and only Son to redeem unworthy sinners from slavery to sin and a sinful life and from the eternal condemnation that would face them if God did not redeem them. But while God did not need a purpose uh, to love, he did have a purpose in sending his one and only son, so that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. God loved because God loved. And as an expression of that love, as an indication of how he loved, he sent his son. And he sent his son for a reason, to die so that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. This is the unequivocal meaning of salvation. This eternal life is available to all who believe in him. The question again is, have you believed in him? The gospel message cannot go out without that challenge to your heart, whether it comes from the one who is speaking, or from the word itself, or your own conscience will now ask yourself, do you believe the way, you, the way John 3.16 asks you to believe, or instructs you to believe, or do you not believe? Do you believe in him? Have you believed in him? Or are you thinking about believing him? Which is a dangerous place to be. Finally, some concluding thoughts on chapter 3. It is clear to the honest reader of John 3 that there are two kinds of people in the world. Those who believe in Jesus Christ and those who do not believe in Jesus Christ. There's only those two. You can cut and dice and slice the world as you want to. It doesn't matter. At the moment, we're living in a culture which slices and dices us on every level, whether we see to their chaos or not. Whether we believe in the confusion or we are placed in a box uh, that we don't place ourselves in. I still don't know what a cis male is. I refuse to understand the concept. But I've been placed in a box, apparently. <laughs> the world slices and dices each other all the time. God has a simple division. Clear-cut, no gray areas, no overlap, no bleeding into each other. Either you believe and have eternal life, or you don't believe and you're under condemnation. Those who believe are those who have come to light, verse 21 of John chapter 3. Those who believe, it says in verse 21, for everyone who does wicked things hates the light and doesn't come to the light. This is works should be exposed. Those who believe are those who have come to the light. Remember how this gospel starts? In him was life, and life was the light of men. Light shone in the darkness. The darkness never overcame it. That light is Jesus Christ. And so John says in chapter 3, verse 21, those who believe are those who have come to the light. Those who have come to Jesus. Those who do not believe are those who love, who love darkness rather than light because their works are evil. You may think your works are good. You may think that you do well enough. You may think that simply coming to church uh, and participating in church life is good enough. It's not. It counts as filthy rags in the sight of God. Good works do not save. Those who do not believe are those who love darkness all the night because their works, their good works, are also evil. Verses 19 and 20. You may say, you know what? That's okay for you, and that's okay for others. But I will rather ignore this and, and simply do nothing. I'll reserve my decision for another day. I will park the thought right now, and at a more opportune moment, I will consider it when I have a better understanding or more inclined to engage with God. Rather than acknowledge that you need to believe or admit the dire consequence of unbelief, you choose to stay on middle ground and remain neutral. A bad news for you. John 3 has no middle ground. 
and makes no allowance for neutrality. You either believe or you do not. And I'm saying this to you sitting in front of me this morning, I'm, there's others on uh, video, on, online, and many who hear this this morning uh, either are not saved because they do not believe or they're not sure. This morning is the time to get the assurance that the belief you have placed is in the right person and that your belief is on, based on the faith that God has enlivened in your heart. You either believe or you do not believe. Every time John uses the word believe in chapter 3, it refers to an action taken which is immediate, in the present, and ongoing. It uh, uses the word believe in chapter 3, most of it at any rate, in a sense that it is an immediate thing that takes place today, it's present. If you believe today, the consequences are effective today, and tomorrow, and Tuesday, and Wednesday, and into and throughout eternity. The belief that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, the belief that He is the only Savior of the world, that He's the only one who can save you, that belief is not temporal. That belief is permanent. And its outcome, its consequences, are eternal life in every sense of what that means, both now and forever. By the same token, having not believed is also an action taken, but not today. It's an action you have already taken in the past. An action that brings condemnation, death, and the wrath of God. We are born into this world in a state of unbelief. Be clear. We are born sinners. In sin, our mothers conceived us. We are born with a in darkness and in death. And that's exactly what uh, Jesus was telling Nicodemus to understand. There has to be a different kind of birth to make you eligible for eternal life in the kingdom of God. We are born in this default position of unbelief. It's an action, it's an action that you've already taken by the mere fact of being born. It's an action that was realized in your past and which is currently in effect already. Verse 18 says, they are condemned already. And will keep you under condemnation, this unbelief, on today, tomorrow, on Tuesday, on Wednesday, and throughout eternity. And if your unbelief remains in place at the point of death, then that separation from God and, his, and exposure to His wrath will be your eternal lot. Unless something supernatural is done to change that lethal trajectory, nothing will change. The action of not believing is instinctively linked to your love for darkness and your hatred of light. That's where we are uh, by default. It is instinctively linked to your continual works of evil and your refusal to come to the light. The only thing that will change that is the love of God working effectually through His one and only Son, Jesus Christ, when you respond by believing in Him. There's no other way of salvation. There's no other way of being reconciled to God. There's no other way of making God accept you. If believing is just too simple, then you miss the point. If believing is not glamorous enough, then you will always be unsaved. If believing doesn't seem to uh, bring you enough merit, well, that's the whole point. Because you cannot be saved on your own merit. Believing is a simple and exclusive action of faith in one who alone is able to give eternal life. Failing to believe places yourself under the wrath and condemnation of a holy, righteous, just God. People fear COVID. They fear authorities imposing restrictions on their life. They fear the consequences of ending up in hospital. They fear all that can take place to this physical body, which is going to die at any rate at some time. There's no way we can keep this fallen, sinful, broken human body going forever. God has provided a spiritual body to do that for those who believe. But while we fear these things, so many do not fear a just, a holy a righteous God who is not just a God of love. Thankfully, he is. He's also a God of wrath. And so they uh, look at Jesus as the Lamb of God, 
who takes away the sin of the world. Go to Revelation and be reintroduced to a lamb who is wrathful with a sword in his hand and who executes judgment on all those who do not believe. Do not misconstrue the person, the character, and the nature of God, of His Son, and of the Holy Spirit. God is love, and God loves, but God's also a wrathful God. And so as we close, I present one final word of warning and exhortation by way of quoting John, as he quotes John the Baptist. Verse 35, The Father loves the Son and has given all things into His hand. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son, which means who does not believe in the Son, shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. So many people base their hopes on the whosoever believes and incorrectly believe that they can wash, and sorry, that they can cash in on that like a, lot, like a lottery ticket at the time it suits them. This is a fatal error which has devastating eternal consequences. They forget that there are two whosoever's, or two whoever's in John chapter 3. There are two whoever's, not just one. The whoever's who believe in him and have eternal life, and the whoever's who do not believe in him and who are condemned already. Which whoever are you? Which whoever are you? The one who believes or the one who stands condemned? ultimately to face a God who executes justice and judgment in a righteous way. For his name's sake. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the work of salvation that it resides totally, completely in the Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you that you and you alone was, has been, is the author and the one who carries out this work. We thank you it's only your Holy Spirit who can help us understand and bring us to the point of believing that this is the way to receive eternal life. And so this morning we pray for those who have heard your word, those who have read with us through the gospel, as John declares so clearly the way of eternal life. This morning as we've read the words from our Lord Jesus Christ himself and from John the Baptist, And as we've been reminded that there are two people, two classes, two groups, we pray that you may help us understand clearly where we stand, in which group we are resident, and whether our future is one of salvation and eternal life, or is one of wrath and condemnation. We pray for your mercy as we pray for your grace. In Jesus' name, amen.